0: Hello and welcome to the intersection. I'm Mark Riley and on behalf of myself and my executive producer Kim Jack Riley, we are grateful you've taken time to listen. In this episode, Donald Trump is indicted. What? Again? The wages of climate change envelops the East Coast in a shroud of smoke. It may be back to normal now, but is it really? The House is paralyzed by far-right members of the Freedom Caucus. The Supreme Court, in a surprise move, voids gerrymandered voting districts in Alabama that would have diluted Black voters' power. While at the same time, Justice Clarence Thomas has delayed filing required financial disclosure forms in the wake of reports he received gifts and luxury travel from a billionaire GOP donor. Let's get started, shall we? The Justice Department And the FBI have been weaponized against me by Joe Biden. They're trying to derail my presidential run. It's a witch hunt. Choose whatever legal problems Donald Trump has. The response is always the same. I mean, I just said it. And he says it every time he hits another speed bump in the road to his eventual run for the American presidency. He says, I'm innocent. Those who charge me are the guilty ones. It's beyond tedious, but he doesn't have to prove any of his allegations in order to have them resonate with his MAGA base. Not even video purporting to show classified documents in his bathroom at Mar a Lago will shake their faith. Not even a tape recording of his undermining the claim that he declassified everything he took with him can cool their ardor. So now, It's one civil judgment and two indictments in the Donald Trump portfolio. And there are still at least two other probes that could lead to criminal charges. And the amazing thing is, the amazing thing is, none of this, even if he was convicted before the 2024 election, none of it would preclude him from running for that office, the highest office in the land. It's laughable. To see even his GOP enemies leap to his defense. Their whataboutisms and equivocations are pathetic. First reports said there were seven charges against him. Less than 24 hours later when the indictment was unsealed, turns out it was 37. Now, of course, the concept of innocent until proven guilty is a bedrock of American democracy. As a result, Unless or until Trump is proven guilty, he's presumed innocent. And, you know, we can't just say that as a caveat or something. He is presumed innocent, just like any defendant, even those, for example, who might be housed at Rikers Island in New York are considered innocent until proven guilty. I guess that must be where the MAGA universe is hanging their collective hat. And of course... As we pointed out many times before, every pronouncement by this man is followed by a plea for money. If he's the billionaire he says he is, why does he need to beg money from people who obviously aren't as rich as he is? But hey, I quibble. One of his stooges was indicted with him. Walt Nauta was apparently Trump's accomplice in running interference when both realized The feds were on Trump's tail. He, too, is innocent until proven guilty. All in all, this time, when the nation, or at least part of it, was held in the grip of this man's grift, and of course we're talking now about looking back historically, this is not going to speak well for America. If he should, by some happenstance, capture the White House for a second time, I, for one, fear for the country's future. The call for violent retribution for the indictments have worried some in law enforcement and has worried some legal experts, as well it should. January 6th should prove to people that the far right, the MAGA world lunatics that support him, are not above massing together and trying to subvert American democracy in the name of maintaining American democracy. The fact that some politicians are calling it an act of war is irresponsibility as it's at its absolute worst. Words do have consequences. The far right, by led as led by the former president, isn't spending all its time on bended knee. The House Freedom Caucus, few of whom backed Kevin McCarthy for Speaker of the House, are now making it all but impossible for him to get anything done. What he's going to try and get done? That's another story. Their latest fit of pique has essentially paralyzed the House of Representatives. They won't give up the floor, which means no business can be conducted. They're angry because McCarthy compromised with President Biden to craft a debt ceiling deal at the last minute even if they can be coaxed to side with their own party, the damage has been done. You may remember it took 15 rounds of voting to get McCarthy in the Speaker's chair in the first place. And don't think this is really anything new. The hard right has beat up on past speakers, from Paul Ryan to John Boehner. The working poor in this country should be aware of one thing. The House Freedom Caucus is coming for you. If they can get away with it, they'll dismantle just about every program that benefits you that they can get away with. That's because, in the main, they are not beholden to you, the people of this country, regardless of how much money you make. You see, and therein lies the rub. There are people who will always court and seek the favor of the rich. Why? Because statistically, the rich vote in larger percentage numbers than the poor. If that ever changes, ever changes, you're going to see some serious change in this country. The wealthy wealthy interests that contribute to the campaigns of these far-right lunatics, and I do say lunatics, that's who they bow to. That will probably never change, but what needs to change, is the insult level of the people who are negatively affected by GOP foolishness. These are people who would rather see the government default on its obligations and held up as a laughingstock before the world rather than make good on the nation's commitments. I mean, that's what that whole debt ceiling thing was about. It wasn't about future debt. It was about debt the U.S. had already committed to deal with. They are as venal and as ugly as the man who leads them, the 45th president of the United States. To make matters worse, McCarthy is blaming his number two, Majority Leader Steve Scalise of Louisiana. That's a sure sign of dry rot in the party that has a majority and is supposed to govern. There's a part of me that wants to see the progressive wing of the Democratic Party in the House act the same way the Freedom Caucus does. I mean, you know, tit for tat, what's good for the goose, all of those cliches. After all, the GOP margin in the House is razor thin, and some hardball by progressive Democrats actually could make the mainstream of the party show some backbone on some issues. However, replicating Republican ugliness to members of their own party would be poor optics for Democrats, and it does not cut the same way it does for Republicans. That's because the media doesn't cut it that particular way. There is no Democratic Matt Gates or Marjorie Taylor Greene, and thank God there aren't. And don't hold up the squad. Don't hold up Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Jamal Bowman. They are not Matt Gates. They are not Marjorie Taylor Greene. The bottom line is, What will all this intransigence do for the Republican Party? We'll see. Up next, air quality seems to be back to normal in New York City and other areas of the East Coast. But what, if anything, have we learned about climate change? This is The Intersection. You're at The Intersection with Mark Riley. It's what summer listening is all about. Welcome back to The Intersection. New Yorkers might have been a little more than freaked out, or I should say more than a little freaked out, when they awoke last week to find the East Coast, and especially the greatest city in the world, shrouded in smoke. The reason for that, and the reason for the shroud, may have been a bit unbelievable at first. After all, who has ever heard of wildfires in Quebec, that would be in Canada, affecting weather in New York City. Yet, that's just what happened. Politicians may not want to admit this, but that smoke just validated every single word Greta Thunberry and other climate activists have been saying all along. They've been saying it, and they've been vilified for doing so. You know, there's a guy named Umar Haq who writes in Medium and under his own moniker. He's been warning for a long time that all the climate signs we've been seeing the past few years means the world is coming dangerously close to a tipping point from which there is no return. He calls it extinction. A lot of people may laugh at his dire predictions, but the great New York smoke-in wasn't anyone's imagination. Fact is, Hock has been writing about the potentially devastating effects of climate change for some time now. And he highlights one constant about life on the planet. Once a climate emergency abates, people tend to see it as a one off, and life goes back to what it was. We're already seeing this in New York City and other places along the East Coast. And then, of course, there's the politics. Events like the smoking of New York ought to make them reframe their timetables, the politicians that is, for tackling climate change, seriously tackling climate change. Anybody see them doing anything? I mean, I know it's not that far gone to smoke in, but anybody seeing them doing or even saying a great deal about this? In fact, all three major television networks in America covered this story and did not once mention climate change. And for politicians... Anybody see them doing anything? That's probably because they won't. If you step back and take a macro view of how climate affects places other than your own cities or your own areas, your own towns, you will see flooding, drought, rising temperatures, and melting ice caps around the world. This is worldwide, folks. And again, looking at the wide view, Instead of electing politicians who pledge to look at drastic solutions to the problem of climate change, the world's democracies are too often turning to autocrats, bent on flexing their muscles, their national muscles, that is, on the world stage. To say that's not good enough is at best an understatement. As far as fires are concerned, are we, as one expert opines, entering the fire equivalent of the ice age? Umar Haq says the public is conditioned to look at the smoking in as a single isolated incident. He says that's the absolute wrong way to view this and other climate calamities across the globe. I believe he's got a point. I believe he's right. I mean, look, I'm old enough to remember when people who evinced a concern about climate change. Go back to Jimmy Carter, who was talking about it and talking about having to switch away from fossil fuels in the mid-70s. And people were called tree huggers and a whole lot worse. And now look at where we are. And still people are saying, well, it's okay. It's not going to be that bad, etc., etc." But if Umar Haq is right, it is going to be that bad. And maybe not for us. After all, I'm not a kid anymore. And maybe it won't change that drastically through the rest of my lifetime. But what about the lifetimes of those we create? What about the lifetimes of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren? If Umar Haq is right, God help all of us. Up next, the Supreme Court says no to Alabama's gerrymandered voting map. At the same time, two members of the court have decided to delay their financial disclosure forms. Want to guess which two? This is The Intersection. You're listening to Mark Riley. It's the only podcast where the world makes sense. Welcome back to The Intersection. Voting rights advocates had long feared a case that had gone before the US Supreme Court regarding congressional voting maps drawn by the state of Alabama might end up gutting completely the 1965 Voting Rights Act. It therefore stunned many court watchers when, last week, the court voted five to four that the state of Alabama had diluted the power of black voters in drawing only one congressional district with a black majority in a state where 26% of the population was black. The Supreme Court, in essence, told Alabama to redraw the lines so a second of seven statewide districts had a chance to elect a black congressperson. It should come as no surprise that the two black members of the court took opposite positions on the issue. Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson voted with the majority. Justice Clarence Thomas dissented, as you might expect. More on him a little bit later. The high court ruling has implications far beyond Alabama. It's possible that southern states like Louisiana and Georgia ultimately might have to change their voting district lines, their voting maps as well. They could be forced to redraw their lines and increase the possibility not only of more black representation, but the possibility of Democrats retaking the House of Representatives. That's why this issue is so important. That was the point of the gerrymandered gerrymandered lines in the first place, that is, to tilt the balance of political power to the GOP. The decision upheld at least parts of the Voting Rights Act. You may remember that act was gutted a decade ago. The central question is whether race, America's third rail, will play a role in drawing congressional district lines. The, the surprise of this vote was that Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh voted with the majority. Thomas, apparently miffed at this pair, uh, implied that his descent, in his dissent, I should say, that they were sort of looking at it backwards. Maybe, however, Clarence Thomas has got other things on his mind. That would be because of the controversy surrounding his acquisition, taking of gifts from billionaire GOP donors. Now, Clarence Thomas and Justice Samuel Alito ended up asking to delay submitting their financial disclosure forms. And by the way, the United States Supreme Court, and by inference some lower courts, have not so stringent rules on what you have to disclose. That was Clarence Thomas's rationale in the first place. Well, I didn't have to disclose that. There's nowhere in the rules that says I do. But yet he took first-class trips. He did a whole bunch of stuff, bunches of stuff, and got some of this largesse from a single donor who by the way has thus far defied the senate asking him to come and testify about all this and the senate is actually contemplating contemplating issuing a subpoena now by comparison and nobody knows exactly the amount of all this largesse from this one guy benefited Clarence Thomas. We don't know what the dollar figure is. However, only one other Supreme Court justice who filed on time, I might add, had any disclosures of a financial nature in terms of gifts to disclose. That was Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who received $1,200 worth of flowers from Oprah Winfrey and about $6,500 in a designer wardrobe for a portrait of her in vogue that was, of course, connected to her being the first black woman appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's it. Maybe $8,000 at the outside. $8,500. Let's put it at the outside. $8,500. Anybody want to bet that Clarence Thomas got a lot more than $8,500 out of this billionaire GOP donor? just asking. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.